Good morning. Bring your greetings in the Lord's name this morning. Felt a little bit like home when I stepped outside, as chilly as it got last night. But, um, yes. It's been, good. it's been good to be at the Bible school, but there is something different about church there where it's all mostly all young people and then you have the broader mix of a body of believers that is, there is something special about this that we need to remember even in times like that when I was about six years old we were living in Dryden Ontario and we moved into the upstairs of the one shop building and my my father's family, well, there's three children at that time, but they were expecting another one, and they said, we have got to have some more room. We were, all, we were living in about a 16-by-20-foot uh, room that had some partitions across one side, and that was our entire house. And my dad said, we need some more space, so he said, why not use some of the attic space up there? And so he built some stairs in the middle of this room and cut a hole in the ceiling, and they were up there working, but it was just insulation and ceiling joists up there. There was no floor up there yet. My my father was working, and I was I was about six years old, and I was very very curious. You know, there had never been stairs there before. So, what do little boys like to do when there's stairs or ladders around? They like to climb them. And somehow, my father got called away for from to go do something else at Beaver Lake, and he he left me with some instructions. He says, "I don't want you climbing upstairs, up up the stairs there, okay." Okay, and then he, he left, and there started to be a conflict of wills inside of me. I knew what my father wanted me to do, but there was something inside of me that felt that at six years old, I, I should be able to determine what was safe and what wasn't. I mean, my dad had told me he didn't want me to go up there and fall down and get hurt. And I remember... Gradually, quietly going up the stairs. My mom was busy cooking. She wasn't paying a lot of attention. I got up there and I looked around and it looked perfectly safe. I mean, I could see where there was these boards sticking up. I could see big fluffy stuff that looked like it would be fun to jump on. But it's safe. It's fine. And I took a step off of the board and those little cardboard ceiling tiles that are stapled up, they're not meant to hold six-year-old boys. And I went through that ceiling right down to the floor. And somehow between, in that eight feet, I had a change of will. Because when I, my mom came running over, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be up there. I knew that. All I know is that all the rest of that afternoon, while I waited for my father to come home, I was seeking to do the will of my father. I was trying to be so helpful. I was sweeping floors. I was doing whatever I could because I knew I had crossed the will of someone above me. You know, I don't remember how that story ends. Maybe it's good. (laughs) But I, I remember that because we all are created with a will. We all have that which in us, uh, tends to drive us. And it's a good thing, because a will is what motivates us in a certain way, for good or bad. You know, Satan had a will, and he said, I will ascend up unto heaven to be like the Most High. It pushed him in his pride to do that which he ought not. The prodigal son said, I will arise and go to my father. A very different response But again, it was that will within him that says something needs to be done, I need to change. It gives us backbone to stand up for what we believe. You know, Daniel, it says he purposed in his heart. In other words, he set his will, this is where I'm going to go. And this is what I'm going to do. Joshua told the children of Israel, he called them all together and he says, you need to make up your mind. You need to choose where you're going to fasten your will. Choose whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was a commitment. It was a a turning of their affection, their direction of their lives. You know, a will is a powerful thing. And it can 
accomplish a lot of good when it is conformed to do what is right. Look back at the heroes of the faith and how many times, because they had their will set and there was a commitment to do whatever God asked them to do, no matter how hard or how impossible it appeared, they were going to do it. And look at the stories that God raised up out of them because they were willing to follow what he said. However, a broken will, or I would say because of definition, a crushed will, is someone who has no backbone and is often very useless in accomplishing anything that has a remote level of difficulty to it. One is a strong will, the other is a crushed or a broken will. And I want to just differentiate here because God, God seeks to break our fleshly will and mold it into his perfect will. And that's not what I mean when I say a broken will. But I've seen a few people that have so little ability to discipline themselves to do what is right or will. It's just whatever wind comes along, they just kept getting pushed aside, pushed one way or the other. Those people oftentimes find it very difficult to stand for what is right, or to accomplish anything of significant value if it doesn't if it requires difficulty. The will is something that's very necessary, is what I'm trying to make the point across. However, everything that God created to be good, Satan will try and take and warp it into something that is evil. And the very will that God can mold to do his own bidding can also be used of Satan in our own flesh to try and wrest that control away from God and determine my own outcome, just like I did. I knew what my father wanted me to do, but I thought I knew better. And I was convinced that my life would be so much better if I walked in my own way. The sermon title this morning is, Thy Will Be Done. And the goal is to recognize the struggle to surrender control. And this comes out of something that God's been working in my own life. I, A few weeks ago, I was listening to an audio book about controlling personalities. And I'm just going to be honest with you. As a preacher, sometimes I listen to things to try and find help for other people. And sometimes I listen to things to try and find help for myself. And this was one of those things that I was listening to something because I thought, and I knew someone else was struggling with something like this, and I thought, well, hey, maybe this would be some way I could help them. And my forehead was so bruised from God using the two-by-four on me, I never realized how much of a problem I struggled with control. But God started revealing some of these things to me, and it was very enlightening and challenging to me. And so I bring that to you this morning to share with you as well. You know, it's sadly humorous to watch a very young child try to assert their will and control their environment. Those of you who watch little children, I don't know where they learn that. Maybe your parents teach your children that, but mine, I think, picked it up somewhere else. No, they didn't. Um, But they have these little gestures. Sometimes they holler. Sometimes they make demands. You know, Sippy, I want my Sippy cup. Sometimes they use tears to try and get that. They wail and wail. I remember watching customers in my store with their children. There was one lady comes in. Oh, my, 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 my. Um, she sits there. No, no, we're not going to do it. And they just wail. They throw themselves to the floor and kick and scream. And, and they cry and they sob. They try one thing after another. And, and finally... She hands them a tablet. Tears are gone. And away they go. Two years old. They've learned how to manipulate and gain control of their world. I'd like to ask you, why do we try and train that out of children? Do we try and train it out because we know that it is good for the for their long-term benefit, we know that they need to learn not to do that? If so, why do they need to learn that? And something that stood out to me is, is it, do I discipline that, them that, that? Do I discipline them out of that primarily for their good 
or for my control as a parent? Because how will it make me look when I'm here visiting if my children misbehave? When you're in Walmart and they misbehave, you feel embarrassed. Am I disciplining them for my own benefit or am I doing it for their own good? Now, sometimes it's the same, it can be the same result. But my question is, do our children perceive the difference? Do we come across in a different way? And so the thought came to me was, well, how do we, how do we train our children that way? Well, we use several different things. We use logic. We try, we try and let, speak to them and say, you know, that stove is hot. I remember growing up in, in northwestern Ontario, we heated with wood. And I remember my little sister, she was only about two years old at the time, and that wood stove gets fiercely hot. It would just take your skin right off your hand if you touched it. And so I remember my mom waiting until that stove got down so that you could touch your hand and it would hurt, but it wouldn't burn you. Because my little sister hadn't learned what hot meant, or she kind of knew what no meant, but she'd say no, and she'd and it wasn't that she was agreeing with you. <laughs> she had a different will. She had a different idea about what was best for her. So my mom waited until she got to that age, and she said, it's hot. It'll hurt you. And so she reached out, and she put her hand against that. And she jerked back and looked at my mom with big eyes. Hot. Stay away. Done. That my mom only had to do that one time. And she learned from logic that this was going to hurt. We use rationale. You know, how would you like if someone did that to you? I don't think I ever bit one of my children, but all I had to do was just ask them if they, if they bit another child, would you like me to bite you? And their eyes get really big. And no, they don't. They recognize that to have this reciprocated back to themselves, is not going to be pleasant, and so we use that as to try and train them. We use guilt. We say, you knew what was wrong to do. You knew you weren't supposed to do that. Sometimes we use shame. And I want to say this, we have to be careful with this one. But sometimes helping someone realize the end results of what they've done and how it has brought shame upon others because of their actions can help them grow. Sometimes we use punishment. I forgive you, son, my daughter, but there's still a punishment. There still are consequences for what you've done. That's how we train our children, and we all recognize that. But I'd like to ask you, does God do the same thing with us? That God trains us with logic. That sometimes we realize that if I respond in this way, I'm going to get that kind of response back. Hmm. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Sometimes God uses uh, God uses rationale. Have you thought about this before? When when this happened in the past, what happened? You look through the Old Testament. God says, "Remember all the things that happened before. Remember how when you would turn, you'd walk away from me, and then things went very poorly for you. Don't do that." And he used rationale. God used guilt. I warned you about these things. You told me over and over that you're going to obey me, and then you turn and go commit harlotry under all the trees of the field. God used shame by allowing them to to fall into shame with all the people around them. You know, as as they were this one nation of God, the mighty God who created the whole universe, his people have to be subjected to the heathens. It was very shameful for this great nation to be. Oh, put underneath that. And of course, God uses punishment. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I'd like to talk about this. Oh. As we try and mold our children's will to our to ours, there are... What we are trying to do is we're trying to ask them to relinquish the control that they want to have in their life. Think about Jesus. When he was 12 years old, he felt the call of God on his life. And I believe he felt that in a very real way. When he was at the temple, his parents came back and said, how could you do this to us? There was a little bit of that shame there that was there. And Jesus said, 
Don't you know I must be about my father's business? He felt that call of God on his life, and yet his parents said, we want you to come home with us. And it says that Jesus did. And for the next 18 years, he lived in subjection to his parents. He surrendered that desire to do what he felt God was calling him to do until it was God's time and place. He had to be willing to surrender that. And so that's a part of it is surrendering our will, surrendering that desire to control our future, our destiny, our lives is something that comes very difficult for us because it's a, it's a kind of a core of who we are. I'd like to read uh, <clears throat> several things. I'd like to read this here. It's a very familiar passage, uh, and I'll be reading out of the New King James this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than in every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And God called his wife, and Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord made tunics of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the tree, way to the tree of life. It's a story of a conflict of wills, of control. You know, God had created the Garden of Eden, a very, very beautiful place. Uh... Let me ask you, could God have done anything else to make the Garden of Eden a better place for Adam and Eve to live? Is there anything lacking there? Was there anything lacking there for Adam or Eve? But so often it is the thing that we perceive that's just out of our reach that we feel we have to have in order to make life meaningful. There are several things I noticed in this passage this time. God did not remove the struggle to the edge of the garden. 
He left it in the middle. And, and I've mauled over that, and maybe you have some advice, some thoughts on that. But if I had something that was so dangerous in my home, would I leave it on the center of the kitchen table? Why did God leave the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the garden? Where they had to walk by it all the time, most likely. Why did he leave it there? See, I don't think that, I don't think, I'm going to back up. And it was also, its fruit was beautiful. And it looked good. God could have made it to be like a, um, a chestnut burr or something like that, that you wonder why would anyone want to eat that. But he made it attractive. But he gave a warning. I don't think the battle was over the tree. I think it was a battle of whether Adam and Eve were going to surrender their will, their control, to obey what the Lord had asked them to do or not. And that is most easily identified when the temptation is right there. Now, God was not trying to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. He was just saying, here is the only restriction. Can you honor me in that? God God knew what that was. And God, let me back up here a little bit. There is times that I as a parent hide things from my children. And I do it for their good because I don't want them to know about it. They're not old enough yet to carry it, carry that load. But what I have found sometimes is that if they find it, sometimes they think, they, they don't realize the danger that's there. And so thus, they may play with something that is, that is dangerous. God wanted Adam and Eve to know, I know what this is. And I know that this is dangerous for you. Don't touch it. And he wanted it there plainly so they know that God knows about it. He wants them to know about it, but it's dangerous. The second thing that I noticed in this whole thing is that God doesn't protect from what is good. He attempts to protect us from what is evil. And that is a key core to the, to understanding the control of God is that we have got to recognize that God is putting some things in our way because he doesn't want us to get hurt. He doesn't put things in our way that are for our, our, he doesn't put things in front of us to try and keep us from a benefit. He tries to keep us from a hurt. But so many times we don't see that because it looks good for food. It looks pleasant to the eye. And we would say, why would God keep this from me? Because, but we don't know the whole picture. We don't know what's on the other side of that. If Eve could have seen what the future ten minutes would bring, do you think she would have eaten that fruit? No. And how many times in our life, if you look back over it, how many times has God put a barrier in our way, but we found a way to get around it, and later we go, oh, why did I do that? Because it brings with it pain and trouble. You know, wouldn't it be neat if someone could just see far enough ahead down the road to know what is really best for us, that could guide us and protect us from the things which are so easily trip us up? Wouldn't it be nice if someone could help us do that? Well, we do. We have the Holy Spirit. We talked about this morning in our Sunday school. We have God's presence with us that can guide us through the minefield of this world, but we've got to be willing to surrender the control to make the decisions according to what I feel is best and choose what He says is best. And that's where the conflict lies, of being willing to surrender that control to Him. You know, God, Eve wanted what was hidden. And how many times have we 
sought something that's been held with us, withheld from us from God, and we kick and fight for it, and then we find that that which we thought was going to bring us peace and joy brings us heartache. Brothers and sisters, there will always be consequences when we seek to take control away from God. It, it always is there. Some of those consequences we see here, you know, is that God says that um, God told uh, told Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Sometimes I think in translations these things don't come through quite as well as what they could. But if you look at society and you look at even our own personal lives, I believe what is saying in here is that your desire shall try to be the woman. Your desire will often try, times try to control and manipulate your husband. But he will rule over you. There's two things that happen there. You know, when, when a woman will try and use her wiles, her ways to manipulate her husband, and sometimes we as men can come across in brutish ruling ways. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of not being under God's way, God's way. Instead of loving, a man loving his wife, a man will find it easier to dominate and exert his mastery over her in often unloving ways. It's part of the part of the curse of not having listened to God's way. And every time this happens, I've watched this happen in homes so many times, both in my store and in our church, and sometimes even in my own home. When I respond in the, in this way, that the part of the curse, the demons rub their hands with glee because once again he's been able to sully the picture that God had intended marriage to be. The other thing that I see here in this in this lesson here for us is God is still the only one that is completely in control. That's what Adam and Eve wanted to be, especially as Eve said. She saw, she wanted to be like God. She thought, I will be equal with God. And in fact, that's what the devil promised her, right? You will be like God, and so we'll be on par, which is exactly the same temptation that that Satan had. But God is the only one who is still completely in control. You know what? The reality is I think that sometimes we easily say that in our heads, but yet we still try to usurp that control in various ways. You know, the story is told of a little, it was a little three-year-old boy. Uh, this, their family had a video game system in their basement. We don't. It's not from our family, but it was. They had a video game system, and he, this little three-year-old watches big brothers take their controllers and push the buttons and manipulate the things on the screen. And he wanted one of he he would climb on top of them. He'd try and pull their hair. He'd try and claw those controllers. He knew that that controller is what played that game. Well, his mom was at a garage sale one day, and she found one of those controllers that looked just like it. But the end had gotten cut off and it was in the freebie bin. And she brought that home. And so when the boys, the older boys would want to go play, they'd plop their little brother in a beanbag chair and they'd give him this little controller and they'd say, here you go, buddy. And he'd sit there and he'd punch those buttons and he'd, and his cord was just dangling there. It wasn't doing anything. And they got to play their game in peace. But in his little mind, he was controlling it. And the buttons didn't quite work the way he wanted them to, but he, he thought he had control. And he didn't. And I think that's sometimes like where we're at. We think we have so much control. We push this. We manipulate that. We try and do these things to try and get our world to go the way we want our world to go, as we think is best. And sometimes God has ways of reaching down and pulling up a little cord and dangling it in front of us and say, Hey, I'm still the one that's in control. The better illustration is is the one of chess. I don't know how many of you play chess. I am no good at chess. But I have two boys that they study this and they know this way better than I do. And if I were to play one of them, they would smoke me so bad because no matter what I would do, they'd have four or five 
plays planned ahead to get me into a corner. Done. And that's sort of the picture of the way it is with God. God allows us to make our moves however we want, but he's the chess master. And he's constantly working that because he wants us to be willing to surrender control to him, to surrender to his will, because then he can use us mightily. But until then, we are not as useful to him. I'd like you to think back over your life over for just a couple moments in your past. Were there things that God has tried to teach you at one time or another, but you didn't want to listen to? You know, you weren't ready to handle, deal with that yet. And God keeps bringing you around and around and around again to try and get our attention to deal with that thing. To finally recognize His sovereignty and to yield to His control. Do you carry scars today on either your soul or maybe even on your body from trying to keep your hand on the controls and to manipulate it the way you wanted it to? If you look through, as you read through the scriptures, look at all the times that God sought to protect his people, to nurture them, to provide good things for them, and time and over and over, their unwillingness to submit to his authority, to yield to his control, brought them tremendous heartache. They lost their farms. They lost their crops. They lost their children. They lost their husbands. They lost their lands because they weren't willing to yield to God's sovereignty in their life. Over and over until finally they were willing to come to that place and they would cry out to the Lord and he'd, he'd step in and he would save them. It didn't always happen immediately. If you remember the story of Samson, they had cried out to the Lord and God sent them a pregnancy. You know, you know, babies grow just as slow back then as they do now. That child had to be born, had to grow up, and come of age before their deliverer came. There was still a price to pay for them. But when when we yield, God will meet us there. The test of whether we are okay with God truly being in control is our response when control is taken away. I'll say that again. The test of whether we are okay with God truly being in control is what our response is when our control is taken away. You know, as a father, I have sought to train my children to be competent adults. And yet my role in their lives has changed a lot over the years. I have a four-year-old the whole way up to a 21-year-old. I, I respond to them differently. And I'll be honest, sometimes I struggle to get that right. Because it's hard. You know, when they're four years old, we need their will to be surrendered to ours. And it's easier. But as they get older, as they start to mature, do I allow the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be vi- in a visible place? Do I give them the freedom that God gave to Adam and Eve to choose both right or wrong? And that's hard. That is very, very difficult as a father to do. And I've also realized that as they get closer to becoming adults, they sometimes challenge my control with their plans or ideas. Dad, I don't want to do that. Uh, I had already made other plans. And inside of me, I respond. How, how, do, how do you respond when that happens? What does my response say about my need to control their choices? If they choose wrongly, do I lash out in anger or do I punish them with coldness or silence? 
You know, I see, I see three natural responses to when control is taken away from us. And these come a lot from my own personal life, okay? Um, so there may be something that you see differently, and I would be more than willing to, to hear that later. But I see three responses to control being taken away. And the first one, the most prevalent, the one that I see I struggle so much with, is when control is taken away from me, I tend to respond in anger. Um, you look at the story of Cain as we went down here. Cain came to the Lord um, with an offering. And Cain wanted to choose what he would sacrifice to God. God had made it clear to him, apparently we don't have it recorded, but God had made it clear to them what was acceptable and what was not. And Cain said, I want to choose something differently. And he brought his own offerings to the Lord. And when it was rejected, what response did he have? It was one of anger. It says he is anger is he was very, very angry. And God called him on it. You know, I don't know what happened between Cain and Abel out in the field when, when Cain went out and talked to him, but I'm pretty certain that Abel didn't uh try to console his brother's hurt feelings with just, ah, it'll be okay, this will pass. I don't think that's probably what happened. I think probably what happened is Abel called him back to what he knew was right. And when someone is angry against God taking away control in their life, and someone else calls them back, it just gets worse. And we know what happened there. I wonder how many people who think they struggle with anger instead need to be looked between beneath the surface to see the root sin of trying to control something that God did, God did not give them sovereignty over. See, God didn't give Cain the privilege of deciding what was an okay, acceptable offering or not. He gave that clearly to him. The question is, why do we get so angry? Why do we struggle with that? I think one of it is because we feel threatened. I'm supposed to be the leader here. I'm the parent in this home. You're the child. You, I say what happens. You listen to me. Now, none of us would ever say that. Or would we? And yet, that can oftentimes be there. I remember, I remember thinking, they're just being rebellious. They don't want to listen to me. They're supposed to obey me. Sometimes because our pride gets hurt and the anger wells up. But I want you to note what God's admonition to Cain was. He says, Cain, I'm paraphrasing it here. There is a battle going on inside of you about whether you're going to do what you know is right. That means surrender your own will. Or whether you're going to go on and do what you know is wrong. And I desire that you reign over your own spirit and choose what you know is right. And if you don't, there is sin waiting at the very at the door. I think the same thing happens to us when we struggle with anger, when we start losing control, when God takes that control away. If we don't, um, am I willing to accept his leadership? And if I don't, there's going to be sin that comes forth from that. It might be sin in my response. It might be other sins that we don't know of. I know, uh, I know this is kind of, this isn't in my notes, I won't charge you extra for it, but um, I know the areas that I, when I, the times in my life when I struggled most with immorality and thoughts and such, were the times when I was not willing to be under the authority that God had placed over me. I wasn't willing to surrender control. My dad didn't understand me. My church leader was just picking on me. And as I reacted to that, I looked back now and I saw sin was waiting at the door. It's sobering. The other response that I see here is blame. You know, Adam and Eve, the first thing God said to Adam, he says, 
Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of this? Our natural response when, when something goes wrong, you know, like maybe we took something, did something we shouldn't have, and then something goes way wrong, and wow, I'm not sure why it ended up that way, if, if, if but it wasn't supposed to go that way, and it, it, if they hadn't done this, this would have been easier. Natural response is to blame someone else. You know, Adam blamed Eve, and did you catch in here? He even blamed God for this problem. He says, you know, that woman that, that you gave me, she gave me of the food, or the fruit. And I ate it. He wasn't willing to accept responsibility. Eve, she blamed the serpent. We so often tend to blame our wrong responses on those around us rather than accepting the responsibility for our own actions. You know, I could be a better parent if my children would just obey me. I've thought that. Maybe none of the rest of you have, but I thought, man, I could be such a, our home would be such a more peaceful place, and I wouldn't have all these conflicts with my children if they just did what I told them to do. Or I could be a better husband or wife if my spouse would just respond in a more godly manner, because they really need to work on that. What are we doing? We're blaming others. I could be a better leader if these people would just follow like they're supposed to. Brothers and sisters, there's things that we are responsible for that we have control over. In fact, God wants us to take control in certain areas. And there's other areas that is outside of our control that God doesn't hold us accountable for. But so often we want to get in there and control those things as well. We are responsible for our own responses. You know, when someone does something to us that really gets our goat, if you know what I mean. Just really pushes all the right buttons and we feel that anger welling up inside of us. We have the opportunity right then to, to choose how will I respond. Will I respond in a Christ-like manner? Will I respond in a, in a, in a fleshly manner? My responses are my responsibility. We are to take control over those. Just like God told Cain. You need to rule over them. We also are to take control over our thoughts. In fact, it says you're to be taking captive every thought that goes, every thought. Now, you can't prevent thoughts from coming into your head. But once they're there, you determine what happens to them. And I remember during some of the time when, when I was about 17, 18 years old, and I was having a lot of conflict with my father. I had some of the most vicious arguments with him in my brain because he was just out of touch. He didn't get me. And, and then my dad would come around and he hadn't said a word to me and I would just lash out at him. What happened to you? I'm responsible for my thoughts. I'm responsible for what I allow to stay in there. That's part of what I'm to take control over. And I'm also to take control and over my own actions. You know, I know what happens when two boys are tussling and one of the parents comes in the room. What happened? Well, he hit me back. You know, excuse me? You know, you're responsible for your actions. You are, we, we are accountable for what we do. God will hold us accountable for our words, our thoughts, or actions. That is something that is within our control and God wants us to take control over it. But there are other things we are not accountable for, and yet we still sometimes try to take control of them. And one of them is other people's responses. If they don't respond in a certain way, do I get angry in order to get them to follow me? Do I try to manipulate them to get my will and my way, just like that child we talked about at the beginning? You know, my my father brought this up one time. He says, you know, one of the reasons why we oftentimes get angry is because it often works. We can get a short-term response, but a long-term loss because we use that anger to get it, to get that control now but we lose the heart and thus the future. We are not responsible for other people's actions. 
And that's the hard part for me as a father, as I realize I have raised my son, and my responsibility is to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, show them what is right, tell them what is wrong, encourage them to choose the right. But I am not responsible to make sure that they make every decision right their whole life. I will pray that way. But that's their choice. And I have to give them the freedom to do that. When we start trying to control these, we are taking control of something that God did not intend us to have. And it leads to frustration on our part, on their part, and for much conflict. And then sometimes when we happens, things go wrong. And then we try and blame those mistakes on something else. The third response is one that you, you might be sitting here saying, well, I don't get angry and I don't really try and pass the blame all much, so maybe I don't have a problem with control. Well, good for you, but there is one other one that oftentimes gets us, and that is worry. When we find that things are going out of our control, one of a natural response can be we start to get worried, and we start to fret. You know, I remember one lady that... uh, she had prayed earnestly for children. We close at 11.30? Approximately. I'll talk really fast. Um, that uh, she had prayed for, they had prayed for children for many years. No children. Finally, the Lord blessed them. They, they had an anointing service. And within about two months, she was expecting. They had a little girl. Two months later, she was expecting again. And she had twin girls. So she had three children under two. And they drove, they got a little minivan. But one of the things that she started struggling with is now she has these children for which she prayed. But she also struggled with fear. And just as an illustration, there was a lot of railroad tracks back around there. She would sometimes drive 10 miles out of her way to go where she could cross underneath or over top of a railroad track rather than having to drive across. Because what if their stick shift minivan stalled on the tracks and a train came along and they were all killed? You know, she, she really struggled with that. Oh, Sometimes we, we struggle with worry about things like that. What will happen if my children don't choose to walk with God? They can keep us up late at night. What will happen if the economy collapses and I, don't, and I have a hard time paying my employees? You know, I don't know about you, but these are some of these are real things that I struggle with it from time to time. And the question is, can I control any of those things? I have found that so many times the things that I find myself worrying about are things that I cannot do anything about changing. And so... Why do I spend so much time worrying? Is it because I'm trying to find a way to gain the, the result that I want rather than trust, resting and trusting in the Lord? <clears throat> Turn with me to Psalm chapter 37 real quick. These verses speak very specifically to this. And I, ju- I just came across them here the other morning. Psalm chapter 37, verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now that talks about control, yielding that to the Lord. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. I just think that speaks so specifically to this whole issue of what we're saying. Rest in the Lord. That is where we, we turn our, we turn the control over Him. Lord, I don't know what all you want to do here, but Lord, I give this to you. I'm going to rest in you to work this out because I can't change so-and-so's responses. I can't change the situation. But you've allowed it for some reason. And Lord, I want to rest in that. And I just, and then cease from anger. Because sometimes when we, things go wrong, as we already said, 
That is a natural response. So in closing, I just really want to say here, how do we change? If we find ourselves in a place where we, we are... We're angry because we can't get the outcome we want. Or we worry because of there's things that are happening beyond our control. How do we start changing? And I would like to take, uh, take you in your mind to the Lord's Prayer. Because I think there's two phrases in there that speak directly to this issue. And we all say it, and I think I have many times have just glibly gone right on through. We say this, thy kingdom come. And yet so often how much of my life is built around trying to build my kingdom instead of his. Thy kingdom come. When we come up against conflicts where we sense we're losing control, am I willing to step back and say, Lord, what are you trying to build in your kingdom here? Lord, I want that more than this. Thy kingdom come. And the second phrase is, thy will be done. You know, this is a prayer that when prayed with sincerity of heart, will never fail. Because it is a surrendering of my will to the Lord's. Lord, I want your will in the place of my own. Lord, I have had tr- I've tried to work this. I've tried to do these things my way, but it hasn't worked. Lord, I want your will in this. Will your will be done? And we see that Jesus is praying that in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane. You know, there was a man, there was our, our Savior, who was at a brutal time of his life. He said, Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want this. This hurts. Lord, I don't want to go through with this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His father didn't take the cross away, but he took him through it. And that is the surrender that we are all called to here as well. That God doesn't necessarily say that when we surrender, the problem is going to go away. But that he will go with us through it. And that is a powerful promise to us. Lord, let your will be done in my life and heart. And that's the other phrase is, as in heaven, so on the earth. Is God's will carried out implicitly by the angels? I believe so. Is God's will carried out implicitly implicitly by his children here on earth? Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. That's the goal for all of us. It is a prayer of surrender. It is a prayer of releasing control and putting the controller back into God's hands where it belongs anyways. It's not easy, but it's worth it. That's what God calls us to.